can open your Bibles with me once again to the Gospel of John. We'll be back in John today, chapter 17. Lord willing, we will look at verses 20 through 23. And before we begin, I would ask you if you're able to stand with me to read. And we'll actually back up, and I want to begin the reading um, in verse 12. And we'll read 12 down through verse 23, and then pray and begin. John chapter 17 and verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, go with me once again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for Your help. God, I pray to have the truth of the prayers here of Your very Son applied to our hearts. Lord, instruct us. Take hold of us individually that we might come to know what exactly is being communicated here. Oh, Father, everyone here is cast upon Your mercy and we can do nothing apart from You. I pray, O Father, that You would guard me as one who seeks to speak for You. O God, I pray that You would protect me from error. Father, please do shut my mouth if I would speak wrongly. And yet, O God, I pray and I ask and I long to have an experience of Your power and presence upon what is said. Lord, use me to say what You would have said. Lord, I pray that You would, if necessary, remove all patterns and styles and any structure that would prevent from a liberty in your word and a proclamation of truth that is applied to us individually and personally. Father, you bring what is necessary through me for your glory. I ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. 
The title of this message this morning is Unity, Glory, and Love. Unity, Glory, and Love. I've got a little bit lengthier introduction for you today than I normally have. Much of the time, I'll spend most of the introduction rehashing the previous verses, and we will be considering some of them as we work along today, but really, today I would like to focus on one of the great needs that exist in the church today as way of introduction. Jesus here, what He says is not just something for us to consider and just grow in our understanding of truth that doesn't actually apply to our lives upon the earth. It's intimately connected. And I'm prepared to suggest to you at the outset today that one of the greatest needs in the church today, and when I say church, I mean those who are genuinely and truly belonging to Christ all over the world. Some would call it the invisible church. Others would call it the universal church. For our purposes, know this, that those for whom Christ is praying in our text are meant to be unified. They're meant to love one another and have relationships with one another that are glorifying to God. And I believe one of the greatest needs today is a real and Christ-centered unity. And as a matter of fact, as we've considered already in John's Gospel, that one of the key elements of our ability to be faithful witnesses in the world is that we love one another. You remember Jesus said back in John chapter 13, verse 35, that by this all people will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And our ability to be effective witnesses for Christ in the world is directly connected to that, to us being united in love. If the church is divided, if the church is at war with itself and constantly demonstrating through our striving against one another a kind of hopeless despair, what we're actually proclaiming to the world through that disunity is that Jesus Himself is divided and not to be trusted. How many times have you heard someone who's not a Christian or not a part of a church say, well, I really don't have interest in the church. There's a bunch of hypocrisy, backbiting, arguing. Well, we might be prepared to tell them that if you go to church primarily for the people, you're going for the wrong reasons. And that's true. But shame on us if our attitude towards other Christians is a deterrent for people to come into a place like this. Our love for one another, not only in this assembly, but Christians abroad, ought to be something that compels the unbeliever to come and see what this is all about. That's been the pattern throughout the church and the history of the church is that people see a love for one another and say, what's this about? How do they love one another this way? And it it produces an interest, a curiosity in them. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.13, and he's charging the Corinthian church there over their, basically their divisions over who they preferred as preachers and teachers. He says to them, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let me suggest that every sinful division in the church, every division in the church which is wrong and sinful, comes as a result of looking for unity on the basis of something other than Christ. That's Paul's meaning here. Here at Corinth, they're divided by an appreciation for different preachers. Some say, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. 
I prefer this preacher to that preacher. If that's the source of your unity, division is in your future. You're going to be divided from people who don't share that same appreciation. And this is something even needful for us. who Many of us are of a reformed persuasion. And if you come across someone who doesn't love and appreciate your preferred preacher, whatever his last name is, and you, you come across someone who says, well, I'm not really sure, I don't agree with them on this or that. If we hold up these men as greater than Christ Himself, it can produce division in the body. And I'm suggesting to you that that which unites us as Christians cannot be anything other than Jesus Christ. We ought not be united by a shared political agenda or united by common interests in our hobbies and things we do outside of the church. We must not be united on the basis of age, of sex, of skin color, of preferences in worship styles, eschatology, or a fear of what the future holds. If those things are the grounds for our unity as Christians, we are going to come into some great division in the future. The moment that someone doesn't share our position on any of those things, which, by the way, are not essential, then all of a sudden there's a division. And you have sex, S-E-C-T-S, sex within the church, divisions, factions, and people start branching off and say, well, I'm going to have cowboy church. I'm going to have black church. I'm going to have this church, that church. All those things, I believe, are sinful divisions, categorical divisions between God's people, which are unbiblical and unright. We should not value those things over our union and shared love for Christ Himself. And yet, I believe all of our tendency towards gravitating towards a group of people who are like-minded with us, that that's actually an innate desire that all of us made in the image of God have for community. We all desire relationships. You know why that is? The Bible says that every one of us is made in the image of God. The image of God. He says, let us make man in our image. The fact that there's an us who made us in His image ought to tell you that part of being made in His image is a desire for an us relationship. God is triune. God is three in one. For us to be made in His image means that we actually do crave and desire community. We crave fellowship. And in light of that, in light of who we are, who are made in His image, we were created to enjoy a fellowship with others. This idea of community, consider the terminology which is often used today. And you hear this all over the news and everywhere else. All these identifications of people groups. You have the black community. You have the conservative community. You have the LGBT community. The Hispanic community. The reformed community. What does all that mean? Well, what it means is that here's a group of people who are united by a common characteristic. And if we are people who are going to go by the name Christ... That which ought to unite us, categorize us, describe us as people who are loving the same Christ. And these other category distinctions ought to fade far from that central focus. And even maybe you're sitting there thinking, I don't like community. I don't like getting in large groups of people. You may be shocked to find this out. I don't either. I have a very... Limited capacity for large groups of people. I prefer to spend my time alone. Alone in a tree stand. Alone. Just alone. I enjoy the quiet of being alone. And yet, even extroverted loners get excited in the company of another loner. And they can appreciate one another's 
interest in solitude. My question for us is what is it that you and I are looking for to have this God-given desire for fellowship satisfied? Where is your sense of community going to come from? In light of that, let me tell you, there in the grand scheme of things, there really are only two different communities on the earth. There are only two different people groups. There are the community of the saints and there is the community of the damned. To use the language from John 17, there are those who are of the world and there are those who are of God and of Christ. And this becomes important because essentially what I'm telling you is that there are either those who we ought to and must have fellowship with, unity with, love for, and there are those to whom we must evangelize. That's the only two categories of people that there are. Those whom we have a shared love for Christ with and those who need to know of the love of Christ. And the way we entreat people is going to come down to those category distinctions. Nothing else. Nothing else. And I believe today that there are two primary attacks against this unity that I'm calling for, that Jesus is praying for within the body of Christ. There are two attacks. The first is an artificial and oftentimes legalistic division between genuine believers. You understand? There is a tendency within Christian people to separate themselves from other Christians on the basis of preference, on the basis of worship style, on the basis of many different things. And we ought not mistreat or have a lack of love or interest in the well-being of other people who genuinely love Christ because they're different from us. Now, I'm not saying that there are legitimate reasons to disagree with one another as Christians. But the slander... And the vitriol which is often used against other Christians, you see this a lot on social media, is putrid and sinful. And I believe that if there's anything that Christ hates in His church, it is the tendency for Christians to mistreat one another. To separate from one another on unbiblical, for unbiblical reasons. So here's the first attack against this unity. And I know many in this community might say, What? Dexter Priest is calling for a kind of ecumenism, a kind of church unity amongst professing believers in different places and different churches. Absolutely. The Scripture couldn't be clear on the necessity of Christians having unity with one another. And yet I ask, what is the basis of that unity? The first attack against the unity Jesus prays for is a dividing over non-essential things. And the second is a false ecumenism which is often used, this false ecumenism is used to establish unity amongst religious beliefs regardless of their commitment to Christ or His Word. Here's how these two things interact. This first attack seeks to divide those who should be united. It says that, that people who should be united in Christ, they cannot be united because they don't agree on every little thing. That's wrong. And the second, the second seeks to unite those who should be divided. To bring together people who have all sorts of varying ideas about who Jesus even is or what His Word says. And both of these issues, I believe, muddy the waters of true Christian unity which Jesus is praying for in our text. Let me give you an example of this. How this works out specifically. Many of you know uh, Brother Joe Inslee. He and I, we do a 
podcast together regularly. And one of our recent discussions we had together was on this very subject of how it is that Christians are to be able to disagree on important truths, important things that we've come to different conclusions on. How can we do that and be passionate in our disagreement, both seeking to win the other to our argument and yet have this unity? You know what? The only way that happens is if we start by recognizing this is a brother in Christ I'm entreating. This is someone who I have a, a shared trust in Christ with. And that foundation of unity tells me I'm free to challenge because I know our unity is in Christ, not this thing we're arguing about. But if you don't have that first, if you don't have that understanding of Jesus as the foundation, then everything else is going to inevitably become that thing you look for unity in. So with these things in mind, who are you and I, who are we to interpret who's someone to fellowship with and who's someone to evangelize? How are we to interpret these things? Well, consider them in light of Jesus' words. Look with me at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Here's the first thing we see is that all believers for all time are united in the fact that Jesus Christ has and does pray for us. He intercedes for His own. And we've made reference of this Scripture already as we've looked at glorious promises that Jesus is setting forth in this prayer. Guarantees for His people. And we've looked forward and said, those things apply to me. He intercedes for us. And it ought to bring us as Christians today great joy in our hearts to know that the Lord has and does pray for us. As you see in the text here, as you read these things, Jesus is praying on behalf of His disciples. If you're a Christian, insert your name. See that Jesus is praying for you. Whenever you see Jesus saying, I've kept them. I've kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them. They haven't been lost now, Father. I'm coming to you. And now I'm asking that you would keep them as I'm no longer with them physically. Jesus prayed to the Father that you would be kept. That all of these prayers that he's offering up on behalf of his disciples here, they apply to all believers who believe according to his word. That's the point in this. And here's my question. How often do we stop in the midst of a trial, in the midst of something that's hard and difficult and become aware of the fact Jesus has prayed for me? Have you ever been encouraged when you're going through difficulty and another Christian comes up to you and says, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. I know you're going through difficult times. I love you. I'm praying for you. And that warms your heart, doesn't it? And it's a wonderful encouragement to hear that, isn't it? And yet... How much greater is it the Lord of glory has prayed for you? He loves you. He's interested in what's going on in your life. He says, I'm not asking only for these. I'm praying on behalf of everyone who's going to believe according to their word. When you read these expressions from the mouth of Christ, it ought to produce in us much joy that there is a guarantee of the things He's asking on your behalf. And here's the second point. I hope that throughout our consideration and every verse we look at today, you see two realities. 
a confident assurance of your belonging to Christ, of that which is supposed to bring you the greatest joy as a Christian person, but also that you see the foundation of your engagement, of your relationship, of your unity with every other Christian. Both exist throughout our verses today. So the first is that we as Christians can be excited, confident. We can rejoice that Jesus prays for us. And second, is that the knowledge that Jesus Christ prays for His own people ought to impact the way that you interact with other Christians. You think about this? Do you remember whenever you're engaging with another Christian that Jesus loves them with a fierce, a certain, a jealous, and an unfailing love? I'm tempted to make this application particularly to spouses. When you're entreating your spouse, if they're a Christian, when your tone becomes bitter, when your attitude becomes sour, do you, are you reminded of the fact, I'm talking to a child of God. One whom Jesus has prayed for and loves in the way we're seeing here. How I treat the unity I enjoy with those around me who love Christ. I need to view these things through the lens of His love and relationship for them. That He's prayed for them. This ought to impact, this knowledge of His prayer for His own ought to impact every single relationship and conversation that we have with other Christians. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word. The second thing, Jesus immediately clarifies that those to whom His prayers apply are those who believe according to to His Word. Those that that we're supposed to enjoy this unity and fellowship with, they're described as those who believe according to the disciples' words. Now consider this. This means when Jesus says, I'm not asking for these only. A central theme of Jesus praying here is our relational access to the Father. That we would have an experiential awareness of God by the Holy Spirit And a big part of that, in light of what Jesus is saying here, that our experience of God in that way is going to come down to our trust in His very Word. What I'm telling you is that your experience of joy, your confidence, have you been tempted as we've been going through John 17, whenever I proclaim to you the prayer of Jesus, have you ever been tempted to think, okay, it's great that Jesus said that, but does that actually apply to me? Has your confidence that His prayers actually apply to you ever wavered? Let me suggest to you that your confidence that His prayers are applied to you, that His love is toward you, is going to be directly related to your understanding of and time in His Word. It surely is a sweet well that we drink from, a wellspring of life when we read the Word of God. It will produce in us as Christian people a greater and greater confidence in the God who speaks to us by it. Even as any relationship you have with a spouse or with a child, with a parent, your relationship with people grows. It blossoms as you spend time with them, talking with them, hearing from them. He's saying that that this he's asking for, those who believe through the word of these he's speaking to. If you desire to have your doubts 
your sorrow and any feeling of isolation or separation from other Christians removed from you, the remedy Jesus is setting in front of us is a knowledge of Christ which comes from His Word. And so that's the first half of this. This relationship between the Word of Christ, which is written down, recorded by these very disciples, which we're reading from today. As a matter of fact, our reading of John's Gospel is the fulfillment of what Jesus says here. If you read the words of John in John 17, John 1 all the way through 21, if you read John's Gospel and you say, I believe what John's telling me about Jesus... Jesus was praying for you. That's what we're seeing here. And so it applies to us that our confidence grows as our awareness and familiarity with God's Word grows. The other side of that is that the basis for true Christian unity is a shared faith in Christ according to His Word. If you and I, if we're interested in true unity, the unity Jesus is praying for here between believers... If we want that unity, then the focus of all our conversations and relationships must be Christ in His Word. That is what the source of true unity is, and nothing else will be. Consider it from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, you can turn there or take this down. One of the greatest descriptions of Christian unity you're ever going to find. Gloriously so. Acts chapter 2. Think about this in light of Jesus' prayer. We're going on to see Him praying to the Father that Christians would be one. We would be united. Listen to that. Think of that in light of this in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. You remember this is on the day of Pentecost. Peter stood up and preached to the people. They're cut to the heart as we saw in the Sunday school. They cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? In light of the fact that we killed one who's risen from the dead, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Over 3,000 people are saved. And we pick up in verse 42 and read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's the picture. What's the foundation? What's the source of this beautiful unity here? The first thing we read is in verse 41, those who received Peter's word, those who received what Peter was telling them, the proclamation of Christ that Peter gave them. They received it. They gladly received it. And then we see them devoting themselves to the apostles teaching. And then we see in 44 and all who believed, believed what the apostles teaching. Jesus tells us in our text that those who believe in me through their word, if you want to experience true Christian unity, it must be according to the word of God. There can be no unity apart from the truth of God's word. It must be our central focus in all of these things. Consider from Jude verse three. 
Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What's my point in bringing up Acts 2 and here Jude verse 3? Here's the point. I am suggesting to you that one of the most egregious sins of the church today is a division that's unbiblical amongst one another. A a despising of one another on the basis of preferences and secondary and tertiary issues. Otherwise called adiaphora, that which is not essential to your soul for salvation. Dividing over those things. And yet, at the same time, we must realize that true unity in the church is only possible through this faith which is once delivered to the saints. The faith which unites all believers. That which Jesus tells us in John 17 is according to the word that his disciples deliver and share. That faith is worth contending for. That faith is worth fighting for. And the way in which we're to contend for it is by appealing to the way it's been delivered to us. And how, might you ask, has it been delivered to us? What faith do we share in? We share in a faith that's been granted to us, delivered to us through these very Scriptures as they were penned by Jesus' followers. Eyewitnesses telling us of who He is and what He's accomplished. That's the faith we've entered into which has once for all been given to us. And any appeal, any appeal for unity within Christianity which disregards God's Word is superficial and vain. I will say, I will cry from the rooftops in this town that anyone who loves Christ according to this book, I love you. And I want to be with you and be united to you. But any suggestion that there should be a kind of superficial glossing over and pretend unity when there's no knowledge of this Jesus in this book is a vain attempt of men to establish a unity that's not real. And it's going to end in division. You look at large groups, large organizations, large denominations. And what do you find? So much of the time, they're built and established upon many things they share in common that aren't Christ. And as those other shared things begin to kind of come into contradiction with one another, and there's a splitting here and a splitting there and a splitting there, and we're likely on the verge of seeing just one of those things within our own convention. But I don't want to get off on that today. My focus is on Jesus' words to us here in John 17. That if our demand for unity is not on the basis of God's word, it's vain. And if our demand for unity goes beyond what's revealed in the scriptures concerning Christ and his word, it's nothing more than a yoke of bondage, which is adding to the gospel. You catch my meaning on both sides here? That if it's not, if our unity with other Christians is not based upon Christ in this word, It's vain. And if our unity with others, if we require them to have something other than what the Scriptures reveal about Christ, then we're adding to the Gospel and the unity that we're meant to have with genuine Christians. And so I ask, what is to be the fruit of Jesus' prayer for everyone who believes in Him according to His Word? What's what's that supposed to look like? Verse 21, that they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It just occurs to me in that scripture, verse 21. Do you see how that actually worked out in Acts 2? Do you see how that came to fruition? Here you have people who are united. They're sharing all things common. They love one another based on a shared love for the truth of Christ. And it tells us at the end of that chapter, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day. That's the inevitable result. As Christians love one another in this way, in the public arena of life, other people see and they say, what's going on there? How is that possible? How are those people who have nothing in common coming to love one another? There's something special and unique seen in this kind of Christian love that is a primary means of our testimony of Christ to the world. That's what it produces. Jesus is saying, I'm praying for this unity so that the world may believe in Christ, that He's been sent by the Father. Now in light of this, let me suggest to you, and not only suggest, I'll say it plainly and I don't back up from it at all, that the unity which Jesus is praying for here is absolutely impossible apart from a supernatural and divine work. And this is one of the reasons that all of man's vain attempts to try to produce unity are always going to fail. We cannot produce this unity because of the the foundation that's within us. The the natural man who's at war with his fellow man. Why? Because he's at war with God. Isn't that what James tells us? That our passions and lusts, those things we desire that other people get in the way of, cause us to war and strive and even murder other people because they're in the way of what I want. And that the reason we war with one another, the reason we don't have this unity with one another is because we do not have unity with God. It's a rebellion against God that produces strife between one another. Our labors to try to produce unity. I mean, you see this all the time. You see this idea that let's figure out these things that are going to unite us, these things that that people are going to appreciate and enjoy. How many evangelists have come in here and tried to connect with you all talking about farming? And some of them don't have a clue about farming, but they try. They think, well, that's going to give me an inroads. And I'm not saying it's wrong to use helpful illustrations, but we're constantly striving after, reaching after things that we hope will get people's attention that aren't Christ. I even observed this this week, uh, this weekend at this conference we were at. It was a wonderful time and many people who seemed to genuinely love the Lord there. And the family night was a blast. The kids loved it. The man stood up and he did his best to try to share the gospel with the kids. And they were entertained and Gabe and I were dancing. And I pray Renna doesn't have that recorded, but it was a blast. And the one thing I was left thinking about when we left was between the fire display and the puppet and ventriloquism, I just was left asking myself, what is it about Jesus Christ that is so uninteresting that we need all of these other things to keep people's attention? I'm not suggesting that we don't try to be all things to all people, that we might save some that you don't recognize a child's limited attention span and try to, try to reach them in, in light of that. But 
But my point is this, that which is to unite us is a raw and unadulterated love for Jesus Christ. And if a child has that, they will love the gospel when they hear it, with or without the entertainment. They will. The faithful proclamation of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can produce this unity amongst his people. Consider from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This is perfectly set before us. And what it is that is to unite us with one another. Just listen to verses 11. 11 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice that language. Jesus is saying that they may be one just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that the world will know that you sent me. And that's directly related to the disciples, the apostles, their word concerning Jesus. And Paul says this, This dividing wall of hostility that exists between men who are at war with one another, who hate one another, who don't have real unity, that wall is torn down through Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone. And His disciples, His apostles, who delivered His Word and bore witness of Him, they lay the foundation. They're the ones who are proclaiming to us this Christ who alone is able to do away with the dividing wall. That which sets one man against another and produces all warring, all disunity and strife is fundamentally man's separation from and rebellion to God. And the only way for man to be reconciled to man is for man to first be reconciled to God. And Jesus is telling us that the power of God, which is demonstrated when Christians genuinely are united by faith, There's a testimony of the power of God to the world that this God that they serve and love is able to reconcile men. And they say, how is it that you have this union together? And we say, because we love the same God. 
We've been forgiven and reconciled to the living God. And because of that, we love one another. And the world says, that doesn't make sense to me. I, I cannot have that, that kind of unity and fellowship. Constantly at odds, warring and striving against one another. Next thing Jesus says in verse 22 is the glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So not only not only is our unity with Christian people a testimony of God's power to save and to reconcile us to himself it is a reflection of the glory that exists in the Godhead. Think about this. When you hear the word glory, when you hear Jesus saying He's given glory to you. Even as the Father's given Him glory, He's given glory to you. We as good Reformed people say, oh, all glory to God, no glory to me. I don't get credit. I don't get glory. And yet Jesus is saying, there's this glory being shared. Now, how prone are we to think about glory through the lens of some vain, self-exalting expression of our own greatness? It's not vain and it's not wrong for God to exalt Himself and to exalt in Himself. But for us as creatures, it is wrong for us to glorify ourselves that way. But the glory Jesus is talking about here is not some self-exaltation that you and I are to take upon ourselves. The glory and majesty of God, which is demonstrated in this text, is a perfect and unadulterated relationship. That is the glory. He says, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. In other words, here's the end of the glory Jesus is talking about. That we would all be one. That we would love one another. That we would entreat with one another. That we would fellowship with one another. And that we would represent that triune relationship on earth by loving one another. That's glorious. Jesus says, I've given this to them so that they may be one, even as we are one. And just think about this. From John 17, 5. You'll recall Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, just listen to that language. Jesus is praying to the Father to be glorified. And the central theme of that glory is his enjoyment of the presence of his Father. It's relational. The glory he's describing is built upon love and unity. Perhaps you hear that and you're like me and such glory seems unattainable. How is it that you and I can hope to experience this joyful, unified relationship with such annoying and yet fallible people here in life now? Well, remember the encouragement that Jesus Christ has prayed for us. Is that not encouraging? The very thing that seems so unattainable to us. Jesus is praying for that. Just briefly look with me at your bulletin. The, the quote from John Flavel. Who says this to us. He asks the question. Did Christ finish his work for us? Then there can be no doubt. But he will also finish his work in us. Is he not parroting? Paul to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will finish it. He who finished the work already on the cross is not in jeopardy of forgetting to finish the work in you now. 
that this will continue and it will go on and we will grow in our glory and relationship to one another. Jesus has prayed for us in this way. And let me tell you this. If you think that unity in the body of Christ is unreachable, our unity as believers is as certain, according to Jesus' prayer, as is our enduring to the end and not being lost. Do you have a confident assurance on the basis of Jesus' prayer for you that you will not be lost? He says, Father, keep them in your name. He says that of you. He also says, Father, that they may be one. Now, I'll I'll grant, and it's surely true, that we may not see the ultimate fulfillment of that unifying glory here and now. And yet it is a worthy pursuit which will be fully realized in heaven. We will be one. We will be unified. It's worth striving after together now. And then lastly, in verse 23, Jesus says this in our text, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they... Also, whom you have given may be with me where I am. Well, hold off. I get carried away. 24 will hold off till next week. But land with me in verse 23 for a moment. Finally, be reminded of this. In verse 23, when Jesus says that our being one together is going to be directly connected to our Him being in us and the Father in Christ, that we are one even as they are one. Notice here he says that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I told you the title was Unity, Glory, and Love. That we first saw the grounds for true Christian unity is the word that Christ has given that's been communicated according to these scriptures. His word unifies us. And that unity is a demonstration of glory. And this unity... And this glory is not ultimately self-serving, though you and I benefit immeasurably by it. The end of this unity is a realization that God loves us even as He loves His own Son. Do you see that in your text? So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Our relationship with one another is a bold declaration to all the world. The Father loves us. He loves us as His people. It's a testimony of God to the world, but not only to them, to you. Each time one Christian loves another, it's a reminder that the Father loves them. The Father loves you. And that is something that's so encouraging and challenging that my labors to love my wife, to love my children, fathers today on Father's Day, love your children to communicate to them that the Father loves them through His love for you. You see, our aim in these things, our aim in unity is not a cold and calculated conformity to a rigid standard. Our goal is not so that we can justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to ourselves. Jesus' prayer in our text is not for uniformity. It is for unity. And there's a world of difference. Praise God that there's not uniformity. I don't want all of you here to look like me, to sound like me, to 
They even think like me in some regards. We're not supposed to be cookie cutter images of one another. But there is to be unity. And the glory of the unity Jesus is praying for is that it's possible for us who are so wildly different on many levels to have a shared love for Christ. And you see, our burden for experiencing this unity ought to be related to the fact and hope that we want to be faithful in demonstrating God's power to save and reconcile. That our shared love for Christ who has been revealed in the Scriptures would be a testimony to the world of a love which they are all desiring and hopelessly pursuing apart from Christ. You know what I have found? I can recall from school, when I was in school, and some of you may be young enough that you remember this, when I was in high school and junior high, is whenever the really big-time goth stage got popular in school, people started wearing baggy all-black clothes and chains dangling and putting on dark eyeliner, dyeing their hair black, and there was this look that a lot of people went to. And you know one thing I observed about that group of people? Not to be harsh towards them at all. You know what I realized just observing them? That every single one of them, as far as I could tell, prior to dressing that way, were outcasts in school. Kids that nobody wanted to spend time with. Kids that were kind of looked down upon, overweight, extremely nerdy, rejected, socially awkward. And all of a sudden, they all start wearing black. And there's this unifying force. I'm suggesting to you that what they really wanted was community. They wanted to be accepted and to belong. And they found it through that expression. And I believe the same thing's true for many things that are going on in our world. People just want to be loved and accepted. So they'll get involved with the, any aspect of the LGBT community movement. Get involved with any number of movements in society because they have a God-given desire to enjoy community and fellowship. And every pursuit, every pursuit of that relationship in unity that's not Christ is going to leave you with a sense of despair and misery. And it won't, it won't amount to that which you're longing for. Consider with me from Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. This is put so perfectly for us here. Beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and saying he ascended. What does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, listen. 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith. We're, we're striving to attain to this unity, and yet we have it in part now. We're striving for unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There they go together. There's no unity of faith apart from a knowledge of the Son of God as revealed in His Word. But continue on. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now notice just in that text, there's these billows and waves tossing us to and fro. What are they? False doctrine. False teaching, taking your focus off of Christ, who is the head. And as we see Christ as the head and speak truth and love to one another, there's this growing up together, growing in this unity together. The burden and charge for us as Christians is that you and I might all see and know Jesus Christ is the only head of the church. And I know we can say that, but do our conversations reflect that? That which unites us is a shared love for Jesus Christ who died for us. And any attempt for unity outside of the gospel, think on this. If I were to say to you that, that you can be justified before God by your own works, what would you tell me? You would say you're a fool. You would say, no, I cannot be saved by my own labors. Well, let me suggest to you that any attempt for unity with another Christian outside of the gospel is just as powerless to bring us together as any attempt to justify yourself apart from Christ is powerless to save you. Christ is the head and he think of this. I started in first Corinthians one. Paul is saying, were you baptized into Christ? Who's your head? Who's the one that you're united to? It's Christ. And then he goes on to chapter two and verse two and tells these people at Corinth. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Someone may come into this church any given Sunday and say, He's always calling them to Christ. Faith, repentance and faith in Christ. These Christian people who already believe. Why? Because nothing will so produce a growth in unity, development and sanctification, than hearing once again of our Lord who has bled and died under the wrath of God for us. So we sing these songs of praise on those grounds. It's a great accounting that I'm subjecting upon myself when I say this. I may have told you, I know I've told my wife and some people over the years, you know, my favorite, in the context of favorite preachers that Paul's talking about, many of you know my favorite preacher is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And on his headstone, is written, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I've told Raina, I want that on my headstone. But only if it's true. Only if it's true. Is there anything else? Is there any other measure which will unite us and give us a sense of belonging, of unity, of family and relationship? 
I say no, there can be nothing else. Because we who are made in God's image will not be satisfied by anything less than relationship to God Himself. And there's no other name given among heaven by men where you must be saved save Jesus Christ. Only through Him can you be saved and have that reconciled work in you. That which unites us is not empty speculation. It's not on the basis of vague or carnal expressions of anyone's subjective ideas about Jesus. And yet, we must, you and I must, love those who love Him. Rejoice with those who rejoice in Christ. And know this, that as our knowledge of Christ grows, our love and relationship with others who love Him will grow. One of Paul's final words to Timothy in his second epistle to him was this in chapter 4 and verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Final thought. Have you loved His appearing? And will you love it when He comes again? The measuring stick. Do you love Christ? If you love Him and you engage with other people who profess to love Him and you talk about Him and your conversations go back to Him and a great love for Him, your relationships with one another are going to grow no matter how weird or different you may be from one another. There's a glorious union that Jesus has prayed for us who love Him. And I pray that as a church we would continue to experience that. That in this town and community that that would continue to be realized as people are brought to faith in Christ. And that you would be encouraged yourself here as you prepare to leave today. With that, I'll, I'll ask you to bow your heads with me and we'll close this message in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Oh Lord, You are good. You have given us Your Son. You have testified to us of Your great love through Your Son and sending Him. You've brought us in to a measure of glory and relationship, unity with Yourself. Oh Father, I pray that You would convict us, grant us humility and a gentle spirit and repentance towards those we've offended or sinned against who are Yours. A willingness to lovingly grow together in our pursuit of You. Oh Father, work in Your people. We trust that You have and that You will. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.